As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the podcast. It's Justin Briley sitting in for Ruth Jackson this week and bringing you someone other than Alistair McGrath on the show today. For the next few weeks, in fact, we'll be hearing from some other great thinkers and exponents of C.S. Lewis. And today is C.S. Lewis scholar Michael Ward. You'll hear my conversation with him shortly. Before we get there, you may be aware that the C.S. Lewis podcast is part of the premier unbelievable family of shows and resources. Well, I'd love to invite you to join me for Unbelievable Live for a Q&A with another great thinker and Oxford professor, John Lennox. You can join from anywhere in the world on Tuesday, the 7th of December at 7 p.m. UK. That's 2 p.m. Eastern to be part of it. We're going to be talking about God, science and faith and taking your questions. We'll also hear about the new video documentary of John's life, Against the Tide, in partnership with the film's producers, Karis Productions and Pensmore Films. Now, if you like C.S. Lewis and Alistair McGrath, I think you'll love Unbelievable Live with John Lennox, who incidentally was a student at Cambridge in Lewis's final years there and can tell you some great stories about his lectures. It's free to register at unbelievable.live.com. And there's a link with today's show. I'd love to see you there. For now, here's my conversation with Michael Ward. The C.S. Lewis scholar and Oxford-based priest is well known for his work on planet Narnia, uncovering the secret planetary code that Lewis hid in the Narnia stories. And Michael has a new book out, After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man from Word on Fire Publishing. And he joined me to talk about it. so good to see you again michael i mean you you like me i'm sure have you know not been able to go very far afield you're usually dotting all over the place between the us and the uk and so on but i i suspect things have been rather more home-based for the last 18 months or so yes i have been rather confined cabined cribbed and confined as shakespeare has it and (laughs) i would have been to america at least three times by now uh, but they've all been cancelled it's very annoying but thank goodness i haven't had the covid and very few people i know have had it so and and if you have to be confined to oxford it's not a bad place to be confined (laughs) you know indeed and i have a pleasant enough house so i'm very fortunate yeah yeah absolutely um there's obviously so many oxford connections with your life um uh tell us about how you became the person you are one of probably the best known c.s lewis scholars in the world Uh, i'm I hope I'm not embarrassing you saying that, Michael, but but tell us, what, how, where did your love for C.S. Lewis come from originally? Uh, probably the same place that it comes for most people, in that the Narnia books were read to me by my parents when I was a little boy, and um, I loved them and read them for myself when I was old enough to do so. 
Um, except in my case, I, ne- I never stopped reading or rereading Lewis. I, I moved from Narnia to his other fiction, to his apologetics, to his academic writings, then got interested in his life, his, his biography, his letters, his, you know, I, I did a, an English degree here at Oxford. And so I began to study him a bit more formally at that point. And when it came time for me to do my PhD, Lewis was the obvious choice. Uh, and so, yeah, without any real deliberation, I've ended up having my whole career sort of focused on Lewis and his writings. And mm. um, I'm pleased with how it's worked yes. out. <laughs> There's a whole other shows I could direct people to from years gone by when we've talked through the the, the great thesis of yours on, you know, un- unveiling a sort of secret code of sorts behind the Narnia stories and the planetary schema that Lewis appears to have hidden within those books, but that's for people to go and discover for themselves. I'll try and leave a link with today's show where you can find out more about that and about your, your own book, Planet Narnia and so on. But um, you've continued writing and researching and, and all sorts. Uh, I mean, your, your latest book, which we'll come to in a moment is, is based on the abolition of man, but it's published through um, word on fire. Um, Tell us about word on fire and, and your own connection with this, because this, some way ties in with your own spiritual journey as well, doesn't it? Um, and, and where you've gone yourself theologically and in terms of the, your churchmanship, as it were. That's right. Yes. So uh, my book on the abolition of man is called After Humanity, and it's published by Word on Fire, Word on Fire Academic, to be precise. They, they've got this new academic line going. And um, <clears throat> yeah, Word on Fire is a Catholic ministry. And I, in addition to being an in addition to being an academic, I am a Catholic priest. And uh, I became a Catholic in 2012 after a lifetime's Anglicanism. And indeed, I was an Anglican priest for mm. several years. I was a chaplain first at Cambridge and then here at Oxford. And then I swam the Tiber and eventually ended up as a Catholic priest. And um, so, yeah, I, I, as it were, I ride two horses abreast. Um, I help out in a local parish, but I also um, am based here at one of the colleges at Oxford, mm. where I do my, where I'm based for my academic work. But I also, as it happens, teach online for Houston Baptist University. There you, um, go. you cover all the bases, don't you? <laughs> Houston Baptists are very ecumenical. They're, they're happy to have Catholics on their faculty. Uh, so I teach for them online in their MA programme in apologetics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did, was Lewis ever tempted to swim the Tiber? I don't think so, no. Um, I mean, he was he was very Catholicly inclined as an Anglican mm. uh, that in certain respects. You know, he had a high view of the Eucharist, a high view of the priesthood. He went to confession. He believed in purgatory. Um, but he i think never had any serious inclination mm. to swim the tiber no mm. talking of lewis and his life um again before we come to your book michael uh, i understand there's a film that's been recently in fact i think it was about a year ago i seem to remember the filming was taking place for this in and around oxford um a new film of lewis's life and especially his conversion story um tell us a bit about that and and the role that you've played in it as well the film is called The Most Reluctant Convert, and it's based on a one-man stage play starring Max McLean, which has had considerable success in the United States. Um, and it's now being made into a, into a, into a film uh, with, with more than just one cast member. Uh, in fact, there are three actors playing C.S. Lewis as, as a boy, a young man, and the old man. Um, and yeah, it focuses on his conversions, first of all, to theism and then to Christianity. It's all 
drawn very closely from Surprised by Joy, Lewis's autobiography. Um, and it's very close up to the facts. It's very faithful to the historical record um, mm. and very well cast as well. All, all three C.S. Lewis's are brilliantly cast. Um, the, the, the young man, Lewis, is played by Nicholas Ralph, who's, who's just shot to stardom as, as James Herriot in this new mm. version of All Creatures Great and Small. Um, and I was asked to play a small part as uh, C.S. Lewis's vicar, as, as his parish priest here in Oxford, uh, the church he went to, Holy Trinity Headington Quarry, and we were able to film in the real church. And Lewis, Lewis's body is buried in the churchyard there. Mm, mm. Um, Don't they have an engraving in one of the windows um, dedicated to Lewis? They do, yes. Near the pew where he sat, there's a, a small etched window um, mm. with figures from Narnia engraved in it. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it was filmed by, it was directed by... Um, Norman Stone? Norman Stone, mm. uh, um, who, of course, made the original BBC Shadowlands about CSS, mm. which won BAFTAs and, and... And and wasn't he involved in a production involving your own work as well? Yes, that's exactly how the invitation came about, because ah. Norman Stone made a documentary about my book, Planet Narnia, called The Narnia Code for the BBC. And um, when he knew he was making this new film that would be set in Oxford, he thought... Ah, oh, Michael used to be an Anglican priest. He's now a Catholic <laughs> priest. He could probably pay, pray, play the part of a priest. And indeed, not only did I, I do that, I, I even brought my own vestments. <laughs> fantastic. There uh, you go. So was, you were props department as well. I was. Yeah, it was fantastic. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I understand it's scheduled for November in the US release. Um, not exactly sure which platforms it will be appearing, hopefully in the UK as well, before too long as well. Um, but yes, I, I'm very excited about that. I do know Max a little bit as well, and uh, and I, I know this. I'm, I'm sure will be a, a great, uh, really great to see what has been a, a fabulous stage play kind of transformed for the screen as well. So yeah. Um, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen it twice now in previews, and um, mm. it, was, it was shown to cast and crew first, and then there was a private screening here at Magdalen College, Oxford, where a lot of it was filmed. And uh, on both occasions, I liked it. I liked it more even the second time, um, which is a good sign. Yes. And yeah, I think I think it's definitely going to be worth seeing, M- much more so than the recent Tolkien biopic, which I thought was terrible. Right. Yes. Uh, they, they yeah, varying quality, aren't they? When when it comes to exactly who who decides what what kind of spin to put on these different uh, biopics, but. Um, my one small C.S. Lewis uh, acting claim to fame is that I I was uh, the understudy to Douglas Gresham, uh, the, playing the role of Douglas Gresham in Shadowlands when I was sort of 10 or 11 um, in a local repertory uh, theatre. So um, so I, I well, and I did play because we were both young, the, the, the two people playing the part, I, I did about a third of the performances. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, and that stayed with me. You know, I think at the time I didn't, I, I wasn't I wasn't in a position to recognize exactly all the, the thematically what was going on in, mm. but but as an adult and reflecting back and I, I it has stayed with me you know that that whole experience of of, of playing that role uh, in, yeah excellent what, Have what, you in, it, uh, what I thought was actually a very good stage play I mean I in some yeah. ways I thought the stage play better than the um, the actual film with with Anthony Hopkins you know yeah, I agree. I mean, it went through several iterations, first as a TV film, then as a stage play, then as the feature film. And I agree with you that of the three, probably the stage play was the best, um, not least 
actually because it's the longest mm. um, it has had more yeah. time to, to have developed the theme yeah. Yeah. but have you ever met the real Douglas Gresham well I have I've also had the opportunity to interview him at least once um, this was going back several years when the Narnia films were being produced by Disney and so on but uh, but yes uh, so so that that was a bit weird meeting the, the man <laughs> in the flesh that you've played as a boy on stage but there you go Let's talk about your your new project, um, After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. So um, to my shame, even though I count myself a fan of C.S. Lewis, I hadn't up until this year actually read The Abolition of Man. But it's not a long read. It's sort of an extended essay, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but do you want to sort of give a give a flavor of, of what it is, sort of where, where it falls within, you know, C.S. Lewis's canon, as it were, and um, what w- someone could expect if they read it for the first time? Yeah, I'm not wholly surprised that it's taken you so long to read it because it's it is a a relatively little known work and a relatively difficult work. Um it's Lewis in philosophical mode. It's based on three lectures in philosophy that he gave during the Second World War. And um it's it's not an explicitly Christian apologetic. He's he's basing his argument purely on philosophy and reason and logic and history and um not it's it's it doesn't get as far as a belief in god let alone a belief in the christian god um all he's trying to do is defend um the objectivity of value mm. that is to say that you know things have value in and of themselves regardless of of what you and i might prefer to think about them um you know there's aesthetic value that waterfall for instance is truly beautiful in and of itself. Um, This statement is objectively true. uh, And, you know, certain moral actions are objectively good. The good, the true and the beautiful, these values are objective. They're they're not just subjective projections from our own preferences. And what was Lewis specifically responding to in his own time? Because he sort of begins the whole book kind of, you know, almost railing against a sort of particular textbook that he's come across. Um, this seems to have been the, the thing that sparked his his mm. thoughts. Um, uh, so what was he seeing in his day and age uh, when it came to people claiming everything is subjective when it comes to values? Yeah, I mean, he starts off with, uh, with directing his fire against this school textbook, um, which, he, which he calls the Green Book, uh, though it was in reality called The Control of Language. Um, but that's really just a springboard. That's a foil into his argument. Um, what he's really tackling is not, you know, school textbooks, but the whole drift in Western thought over the last several centuries, really, towards an increasingly subjectivist approach to reality. Um, so it's a very large-scale argument that he's making, but, you know, clever rhetorician great stylist that he was he starts with something small and particular a school textbook that we can all recognize uh, as you know something that we've we will have interacted with um and you know, gradually unfolds his argument from there and i mean it has become very widely recognized and admired as as an attack upon subjectivism and as a defense of objectivity um partly because it's so very philosophical it because it's not an explicitly Christian or even theological work, it, it attracts a, a wide readership. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian or a theist to 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 enjoy what he's doing there. Hmm. So, how h- how does this manifest itself today? Would you say you know that has only continued that trend that he was obviously noticing when, when he gave these lectures in the Second World War? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's 
described as a prophetic and a prescient work, um, and rightly so, because I think what Lewis saw as, 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 as being underway in the 1940s has only really accelerated in the decades mm. since. Um, mm. So that, you know, a few years ago, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. We now live in a post-truth society. Um, and that, you know, that linguistic development show, shows you, I think, how things have changed since Lewis's day. Yeah. What, what then are you trying to do? Obviously, people can read the book themselves. In fact, uh, I think the book, um, your, your own book, your guide, is coming with a newly sort of printed, um, a newly minted version of The Abolition of Man. Um, what, what, and your book, I think, is actually bigger, you know, than Lewis's book, you know, as a commentary on it. Um, so what, what are you, um, what are some of the key things that you're drawing out for today's reader for, of The Abolition of Man? Yes, my book is considerably longer than the, than Lewis's. Lewis's is about twenty thousand words, and my book is more like eighty thousand words. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I I think that's not because I'm just you know flogging a dead horse or labouring <laughs> a point. It's because there is so much packed into Lewis's mm. work, pound for pound, word for word. It's one of his densest pieces of of argumentation. So mm. it does take a lot of unpacking and. You know, there are a lot of just sort of allusions and things taken for granted in Lewis's work, which the average reader won't know about. And, you know, I didn't know about until I did my research. Um, I learned a lot in putting this book together. And because I'm not a philosopher myself, um, I don't take I don't, I don't take anything for granted about what readers of Lewis will find difficult because mm. I find it difficult myself. And I've noticed that my own students also, though they recognize that this is an important and, uh, and significant work, they they can't often get their teeth into it. Um, so, yeah, I've provided this guide. And if anyone wishes to buy After Humanity that from the publisher, Word on Fire, then they automatically get this tie-in edition of The Abolition of Man with a complimentary cover so that they're matching books. And um, what I tried to bring out... Um, was that your next question? Yeah. What, what What are some of the key the key lessons for you that that the abolition of man has? Um, I, I've seen it being quoted quite frequently, actually, in the last eighteen months. Um, uh, you know, in, from various apologists and thinkers. Um, so, so, and, and Lewis has always been that master, hasn't he, of of that, that encapsulating an idea in a way that it does fit into an Instagram post or a Facebook post or whatever. Um, but what, what, what would you say were some of the, the kind of takeaways for you as you researched the book that you thought, yes, this, this is like Lewis speaking to our condition right now? Mm. Well, I think the principal takeaway is that uh, if value is indeed subjective, if we do indeed just project value onto the world, um, from our own preferences, our own whims, our own opinions, our own willpower, um, then there's really no such thing anymore as uh, rational debate. Because to debate with someone about reality requires both you and the person you're talking with to recognise that there's something outside each of you, which, between you, hopefully, you can come to a better understanding of. Mm. But there, there can be no better or worse understanding of reality if reality is entirely projected from inside each one of us. Um, what are we talking about? It's, it's, it's basically a kind of solipsism that results from, from a thoroughgoing subjectivist approach to reality. So that itself is a really dangerous 
philosophical thing to embrace because it, mm. it leads to it leads to conflict, it leads to war, it leads to you know sheer willpower. If I can't persuade you rationally, and you can't persuade me rationally, then all we can do is lock horns, and the stronger one of us will dominate the weaker mm. through sheer force majeure, and that's that's not the way to freedom and peace. I mean, where I see this potentially playing out in some way in, in a modern culture is um, you have the the kind of the secular side who are all for science and that is our guide and, and that is objective reality and, and we need to measure everything by that objective reality. That's that's their kind of... And then you often find them locking horns with other secular folk who, who are, you might argue, more subjectivist in their approach and say, no... We, we impose all our own values, you know, on, on everything. And we're all a product of our situation and culture. And, and you, you know, you see this role rolling through, especially in the areas of gender identity and sexuality and so on at the moment where you can, you know, I, I'm allowed to label myself you know, a woman if I feel that I am a woman inside. And, and I don't care what the biology or the science says about that. It, you mm. know, that's a that's an internal um, feeling or, or whatever. Um, do do I mean is it, I mean perhaps Lewis didn't anticipate these specific debates that we're now seeing play out you know in in culture today but but presumably you think they're they're quite relevant to to his thought absolutely they are the outworkings of of those things that he was putting his finger on back in the 1940s and although I think he would have been amazed at the the speed with which these gender questions have arisen. I, I don't think he would have been surprised by the fact that they have arisen um, because uh, what, one of his chief considerations, I think, as a, as a philosopher was questions of gender. You know, the Ransom Trilogy, his trilogy of interplanetary adventures, sometimes called the Space Trilogy, um, is all about gender. That's the main theme. Um, and he had a very strong view about the necessity to recognize the the reality of masculinity and femininity. And if we did not, he said, we will soon find out that not that we are playing with them, but that they are playing with us. You know, these are mystical archetypal realities, transcendental metaphysical realities, gen- gender identities, mm. that is, and we should not mess about with them. Uh, and to, to, to that extent, um, as, as, as society has moved in some respects in that, subjective direction we are seeing this these these now you know heated debates taking place about this whole thing i mean would would lewis be any more a fan of the you know the secularist who's all about the science as well though you know that that we we have a you know science is our only guide to objective reality presumably he wasn't exactly a great fan of that either no not because he was against science but because he was against the um the overvaluation of a, of a particular scientific paradigm. Mm. You know, science is only as good as as the, the the means of study that it brings to its field of inquiry, and th- those modes of inquiry need to be kept under constant review. And yes, although I mean, although we're trying to gain understanding of objective reality. It's still the case that we understand reality as subjects. You know, you you and I are necessarily uh, confined to a particular perspective, and we need to recognise that humbly, and mm. and therefore adopt a due provisionality about any conclusion that we come to. 
And and I think that it's that um, provisionality and humility that Lewis thinks that some scientists or scientists, Mm. the followers of scientism, um, do not keep fully and duly in mind. Um, They they begin to, you know, as it were, rest on their laurels. Oh, this has worked for us in the past. Mm. Let's just keep continuing to apply this paradigm ad infinitum. But of course, science progresses by... By revolutions, you know, the, the structure of scientific revolutions, that great book by Thomas Kuhn, um, speaks very much, I think, to Lewis's attitude to science. And the title itself, The Abolition of Man, um, talk about that, because ultimately Lewis is saying there is a givenness to who we are, uh, to the value we embody. And and obviously, although he doesn't necessarily put it in quite these explicit terms, you, you can find that terminating in the fact that god has created and given us our, our value and so on what 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 was he set foreseeing would be this so-called abolition of that idea this abolition of man and and where do we see it, i suppose reflected in in our modern culture yes he calls his book the abolition of man because he thinks that recognition of objective value is is the is the definitively human faculty um we are um, we are rational animals. We are unique in the universe. Um, angels have rationality, but angels don't have bodies. Animals have bodies, but they don't have rationality. Um, and so we are this composite creature um, with a rational head and a sensual belly. But between the head and the belly, we have this definitively human faculty, which he calls the chest, which is Mm. the liaison officer between reason and passion. And it's that chest which links the angel and the animal and gives us the anthropological. And so that's his argument. If If we fail to integrate our reasons and our passions, then we either evaporate upwards into false spirituality or descend downwards into bestiality and either way, our manhood, our humanity is abolished. And and in the process, I think his his great concern was that we, if we become so flexible, so moldable, the, the concept of who we are as humans, uh, it effectively, we hand over power to whoever is the leading power broker. You know, it, we will be molded by by others. There is no, if there is no objective standard, it, it will be whatever mm. culture, society, science whatever decides we want to be I, I think i even seem to remember he sort of you know developed this whole thing in his science fiction trilogy especially in the last book um that hideous strength where he talks about the the, the potential pitfalls of of science to decide the future of humanity and what we are going to be and su- such like absolutely yeah that hideous strength he says explicitly it has behind it a serious point that i have tried to make in my abolition of man it, it is the kind of fictional counterpart to the philosophical argument that he gives in abolition. And yes, if um, if we go down this path, um, it all becomes a question of power. Who has power to, to mould everybody else? And it's not that they are, you know, the, the, the conditioners, the innovators are, are, are a particularly superior kind of human being. Um, if they have stepped out of the objectivity of value, then they, then they are no more human than the rest of us. So it's not that we we underlings are being conditioned by other men. They themselves are being conditioned by their irrational impulses. And so 
either way, the abolition of man is brought about, mm. either directly or indirectly. And and again, Lewis, to, to some degree, predicting what we are now seeing, I think, in, in things like the transhumanist sort of movement and that sort of thing, where, you know, there are people who are saying, yeah, we, we need to sort of uh, transcend the shackles of our physical nature we can do what we like to our bodies we can you know uh, live forever in some you know digital universe or whatever there's there's a sense in which um yeah and and the question is what is the results of taking off those those limitations in, mm. in that kind of way would i mean would do you think lewis would have recognized you know what he wrote about you know in the 50, 40s and 50s as, as as having a sort of concrete realization today Absolutely, yes. Uh, he, he uses the word post-human at one point in the book. Um, I think not transhuman. Uh, that development hadn't yet sort of raised its head on the horizon. Mm. But um, yeah, I think he saw where all this was possibly leading. And it's interesting that you mentioned the, the idea about you know living forever in a digital reality. Um, because at, at, the, at the root of all this, as I've been implying, is a desire for power um, to to recognize the objectivity of value is to recognize that, that there's something outside our wills that we need to conform ourselves to. We have to, as it were, surrender to reality, not impose ourselves upon reality. And, you know, the, the absolutely crucial question in this regard is, of course, our own mortality that we have to recognize that we are mortal. We are going to die. We may not want to, but <laughs> so what? It's going to happen to us anyway. It's an objective reality. <laughs> um, and so it's interesting that in The Abolition of Man, Lewis repeatedly circles back to the question of, of death for a good cause. Um, dying for one's country, he says, is the, is the crucial test of the objectivity of value because when you have to suffer for doing the right thing, um, it's it, it's revealed to you that what you believe is indeed subjective. If it was a, if it were merely subjective, then you would change it, wouldn't you? you mm. So that you didn't have to suffer or mm. die. But when you do suffer and die for for a good cause, for for the right, um, that indicates that what you're talking about is is genuinely objective, and and that's why he completely he re- repeatedly comes back to this Latin tag. Dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. It's sweet and seemly to die for one's country. And sometimes he he sneaks in uh, Jesus's words about greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the crucial test of the objectivity of value. Um, And indeed, one of the things I try to bring out in my book is that Lewis himself had seen this up close and personal in the First World War. He'd been a soldier in the Great War and very nearly killed. Many of his close friends and comrades were killed. Um, so he'd sort of tested this principle on his own pulse. He, mm. he had seen men die for their country and it hadn't shaken his belief in the objectivity of value. So much more we could talk about regarding the, the guide you've written to the abolition of man, Michael. But thank you very much for this this brief foray into it. Um, again, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a double sort of whammy if you get both of the books uh, by ordering from uh, Word on Fire, isn't it? Just explain again what people will get if they if they follow the links. Yes, wordonfire.org slash humanity is the website to go to. And there you will get not only my guide after humanity, but this free complimentary tie-in edition of Lewis's book with a matching cover. 
so make sure to order through Word on Fire. Don't go to Amazon because I think through Amazon you're not so sure of getting the tie-in edition. Okay. Well, always good to support from the source anyway. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for the time. Uh, it's uh, it was I, I was delighted to be introduced to uh, a new Lewis work that will now sit on my shelf. And uh, and as you say, it's extraordinary how prescient the issues mm. remain today. Uh, and as you bring out in your own um, in, in your own guide to it. But thank you very much for being with me on the show today, Michael. My pleasure, Justin. Thanks. Thanks for being with me on the C.S. Lewis podcast this week. Next time, you'll hear a lot more about the film that Michael mentioned, C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. I'll be bringing you my interview with its lead actor and writer, Max McLean. So don't miss that next time. And don't forget that if you like Thinking Christianity, we think you'll love Unbelievable Live with John Lennox on Tuesday, the 7th of December. You can join us from anywhere in the world for free and ask your questions of the renowned Oxford professor and thinker. Just register at unbelievable.live. For now, have a good week and see you next time. <laughs>